Welcome to Madam's Hoes and Gigolos, a podcast about the history of sex work and the historical events surrounding sexual revolutions. I'm your host, Heather, and with me is my friend, Connor. Together, we've created a bi-weekly podcast discussing all topics in regards to history and sex. In honor of February being Black History Month, we wanted to focus on women of color today. We'll be discussing Billie Holiday, one of the most influential jazz singers of all time. So, Connor, yeah. did you see our Stormy Daniels cameo that answered our question? I did. I thought that was awesome. You know, it's been less than a month since our official launch, right? Because that went up uh, the day before Inauguration Day. And uh, a lot of people have been tuning in. And so we appreciate all of you. Definitely. This has been a long process to get this started. We started about six or seven months ago, but decided to put it on hold because it was a political year and politics and tensions were rising. So we figured it was better to just wait. And I'm happy to see all the excitement and all the listens and couldn't even, I can't thank you guys enough. Yeah. And lots of reviews on, uh, on iTunes podcast, which is awesome. We really do appreciate that. You know, I do have a question though. Um, after our Stormy Daniels podcast, which if you guys didn't listen to it, one of the uh, the big questions that Heather wanted to know was, what color socks was Donald Trump wearing that night? I thought that was a very strange question. And, uh, and guess what? We got it answered. But how did that come about? Well, I have a fabulous group of friends who have supported this journey. And when I asked that question, they sought out Stormy Daniels and got the answer and I'd like to just thank every single person who contributed to that. There's a long list of women. And thank you for getting that answer. Thank you for supporting this really long journey to get this here. And I feel like Stormy christened us and calls us the pro-hoes. Yeah, that was kind of neat. Um, if you guys didn't see her um, response to us, check out our Instagram. It's at Madam's Hose and Gigolos. And uh, you'll see the video on there. It's pretty cool to check it out. We'll have the link in the show notes as well. Yeah. But today, we're speaking about Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday. Great, great singer and songwriter. All right. So Billie Holiday, or often referred to as Lady Day, is perhaps one of the greatest jazz musicians to ever live. She gave jazz fanatics songs to last a lifetime. Her melodious voice and trademark tilting back of back and forth of the head will always be remembered fondly. Although she thrived at her craft, the strange fruit singer who grew up impoverished pattern of an abusive relationship and drug abuse. Like many great artists, she roared through life. She remained faithful to the subculture in which she found herself and never asked for anything and most certainly never asked for permission. Information gathered from The Lady Who Sings the Blues is an autobiography written by Holiday and ghostwritten by William Dufty, in 1956. However, details of her first 20 years of life are difficult to trace. Her versions of events are romanticized in the autobiography. She's been cast as kind of a saint, but she would never put herself in that role. There was something very cool about saying, I survived and came back stronger. Many incidents were skipped over and changed as co-writer Dufty was forced to water down and suppress material by the threat of legal action. People or things were not mentioned in by their proper name. Her aunt, referred to as Ida, in the book is actually named Eva. Turns out, Billy admitted she never even read the book, that Dufty had just pieced together a bunch of interviews of her to write this autobiography in hopes to get a movie deal. So, I'm committed to getting this right. I also read Wishing on a Mood by Donald Clark and had the song Strange Fruit on repeat as I channeled her energy. 
And I hope we can tell the story of Billy the way it deserves to be told as a determined woman with a great appetite for life who lived life on her terms in a man's world. Holiday was never able to capitalize on her amazing talent and to live a life as a musical superstar. Her brand of self-destruction was a plea for love that ironically her bad behavior pushed away. Trigger warnings, domestic violence, sexual assault, and addiction. Eleanor Fagan was born on April 7, 1915 in Philadelphia, the daughter of African-American unwed teenage couple Sarah Julia Sadie Fagan and Clarence Holiday. For the sake of continuity, we'll refer to Eleanor as Billy. At 18, Sadie was working as a live-in maid for a white family, and one night she met a younger teenager named Clarence Holiday. Sadie became pregnant. Sadie's father and his wife disassociated themselves with her, and Sadie went to Philadelphia to have a baby. Clarence Holiday was 16. He had hopes to become a trumpet player in a jazz band, but while serving in World War I, he was exposed to mustard gas, damaging his lungs. Clarence learned guitar, playing rhythm guitar and banjo as a member of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. He started to tour, rarely seeing his daughter. Clarence abandoned his family to pursue a career as a jazz banjo player and a guitarist. Holiday's birth certificate in the Baltimore archives lists her father as Frank DeVise. It's unknown the relationship of Frank to Sadie. He had family from Maryland, so he could possibly have been a family friend giving sympathy to Sadie, or an error made by the hospital or the government worker. Either way, Clarence, though not active in his daughter's life, did claim paternity. Billy grew up in Baltimore and had a very difficult childhood. Her mother married a man named Philip Golf, but after two years, he abandoned Sadie and Billy. Billy had said that Philip had died. There are no records of his death, so it's possible Billy had convinced herself that this was the truth. Billy yearned for her grandfather, or a father, who achieved things and got respect. With all the hard work Sadie did, she got very little respect. Sadie remained poor and rejected. Her mother often took what were known then as transportation jobs, serving on passenger railroads. In her mother's absence, she was being cared for by others during the first 10 years of life. What does that mean, that she was serving on uh, transportation jobs or serving on a, on a railroad? Is that the equivalent of a, like an airline stewardess? I would believe so, yes, that she was working on the railroads. And as they would go back and forth between Philadelphia to Baltimore, she would just be serving, maybe being a steward, turning down the, the, the rooms, that were on the train. I imagine that was the role she was playing. I wonder if that was seen as kind of a glamorous job. Like sometimes we see uh, flight attendants. It's like, wow, that's a kind of a cool job because you get to fly all over the place and meet a lot of people. I think she had a specific track that led from Baltimore to Philadelphia and just went mm. back and forth. So I don't think there was much traveling involved other than, you know, those, sure. those directions. Billy was an early bloomer, often making her look older than she really was. So with a lack of supervision, Billy frequently skipped school, and her truancies resulted in her being brought before the juvenile court on January 5, 1925, when she was nine years old. She was committed to the House of Good Shepherd, a Catholic reform school. Billy was nine and much younger than the other girls at the school. Most were about 13 to 18, but for some reason, they thought she was older than she really was. In October, Billy was released to her mother. Wow, this... Is Actually, it's reminding me, I know that uh, I had mentioned to you The Simpsons before, right. but I'm remembering a Simpsons episode where Lisa, as eight years old, ends up going to college and everyone thinks that she's older than, than she is and she kind of fakes it. And there's another similarity between Lisa Simpson and Billie Holiday that uh, I think we'll mention a little bit later. You know, I've noticed there's a lot of Billie Holiday references in pop culture. Yeah, you just got to know. 
Yeah, you just got to know what to look for or the names. Sadie kept taking transportation jobs, which meant leaving Billy. She opened a restaurant, the East Side Grill, which really was just a sign out in the front of their house. They had gas and electricity and during this time, and Sadie worked as a maid. At 10, she had come home from school one day to have her neighbor, Mr. Dick, as she called him, inside the house. His real name was Wilbur Rich. According to Billy in an interview, Mr. Dick told her her mother had asked him to take her to a neighbor's house and to meet her there. She went with Mr. Dick, and at this home, he attempted to rape her. I had a feeling that was coming. Ugh, yeah. She screamed and fought him off. A woman in the home tried to hold her down. Her mother barged into the room with the police. The only way her mother found out where Billy was was a jealous lover of Mr. Rich was waiting for her on the doorstep, making threats. Keep your kid away from my man. Jeez, if that's not victim blaming a nine-year-old kid. How, how, how about the sentence of keep your kid away from my man? Sick. Mr. Dick was arrested, but Billy was also put in a cell for a couple days until court. Mr. Dick was sentenced for five years in jail, and Billy was sentenced to a Catholic institution. At this institution, a punishment, they once locked Billy in a room with a dead body overnight. That is a crazy punishment in a Catholic institution. Why do they lock her in a room with a dead body? Well, from what I'm gathering is Billy watched this girl die, and she was being blamed or punished for something else. And as punishment for Billy, who was not acting to their standards, I should say, Mm -hmm. they put her in the room with the body overnight. And I know that with certain traditions and certain religions at this time, they would leave the bodies out for people to view. It was like a wake, but in homes. But since this was an institution. Yeah. Now, what happened to make a young girl die at this institution? So this girl was being punished. And in order to avoid being punished by the nuns, she went on the swing set and started swinging and got really high that the swing set snapped. And Billy and a bunch of other girls watched the whole thing. And the girl died because the swing, when she was up in the air, snapped. And so they had put her in the room. And then I think Billy acted out by, I don't even want to say acting out. I think she kind of said something to the nuns as putting blame on the nuns that her death was their fault. And Mm -hmm. so they locked her into the room. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the swing sets that we have today are made out of like metal chain and have like a rubber thing on there to keep you from even getting your your fingers pinched in there i think that was more of our childhood i mean that's what i'm saying do you even remember those mcdonald playgrounds where you could possibly get poked and get hepatitis (laughs) i think that back then a swing set was like a piece of wood for the seat and like a twine rope that was hanging from a tree or something right who who knows i even remember we had a metal not we but my my daughter's grandmother had a metal swing set and when you adjusted your weight wrong you'd fall off and my daughter at two fell off and broke her leg Mm. and she wasn't even you know she was being pushed she wasn't swinging herself but you adjust the weight wrong on these these contraptions and yeah thank goodness the kids just play with ipads these days (laughs) right After dropping out of school, Billy took jobs around her neighborhood. Her mother stayed in Long Island, New York, and left Billy with Miss Lou. Miss Lou was disabled after a fall in cancer. She was unable to go up the stairs in her own home, much less keep an eye on a mischievous child. Billy was cursing and fighting. At the corner nearest her house, she worked at Alice Dean's whorehouse, 
where the young Holiday ran errands for the girls and listened to jazz music of Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith. So as a child, uh, she was working at this whorehouse, but not as a sex worker per se, just as a, you know, running errands for them. Uh, was this a paid job for her? She actually just wanted to listen to the records and they had a record player. So she agreed to do these things if she could have the ability to listen to the Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith records. Yeah, I guess record players weren't super uncommon, but when you're when you don't have the money for it. When you're growing up impoverished, yes. Wow. Well, in early 1929, Billie Holiday had joined her mother in Harlem. Now, here we have conflicting stories. In the autobiography, it uh, tells a story of how Billie became a prostitute herself and how she denied a man and then was sent to Welfare Island to serve time. He was a powerful man and had connections to the cops and they ended up busting her. He didn't like being rejected. Uh, other sources say that Billy and her mother were, were prostitutes at a brothel and the place was raided so Billy and her mother were both sent to jail. But either way, she got in trouble and ended up serving time. The book Wishing on the Moon, which is a collection of interviews about Billy from people who knew her, all said that she was singing in the clubs. We know that 14-year-old Billy ended up at Welfare Island. Whether it was with her mother or by herself remains unclear, and it's not confirmed if it was for prostitution or something else. After Billy's release in October, she promised never to go back to the streets. She started singing in nightclubs in Harlem. Billy adopted the stage name Billy from an actress that she admired, Billy Dove, and Holiday after her father. The chronology of Billy's performances isn't certain. The clubs were so close together. During the Jazz Age, there were like 20 different clubs on the street between Lenox Avenue and 7th Avenue. So both Grey Dawn and Pods and Jerry's on 133rd Street played major roles in the development of African-American entertainment in Harlem and in jazz. Billy was 16 when she started singing at Pods and Jerry's, and by 17, she replaced the singer Monette Moore at Coven's, which was a club on West 132nd Street. Producer John Hammond first heard Billy one of those nights. John Hammond, no relation to the guy from Jurassic Park. No relation, but John Hammond is instrumental in sparking the careers of Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Ray Vaughan, as the most recent. Wow, that's awesome. That's not very uh, recent, but uh, he had a pretty good uh, ear for talent. You have a Bruce Springsteen record right now on your desk. I'm looking at it. Okay, I'm going to tell you what's up with that. Um, my brother uh, has friends that are music journalists. Uh, one of them is a young lady who actually doesn't have a whole lot of exposure to like music from our era and our parents. And so a couple of the guys put together a um, kind of a playlist and said that on this day, um, you're going to listen to the entire album. Because back in the day, we used to buy an album and listen to that album that was like 45 minutes to an hour and a half or so, right? Nowadays, we can just buy a single on iTunes or Amazon or whatever. But at the time, we would listen to complete albums. That, that was a whole experience. And so the first album that she was instructed to listen to was Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born in the USA. And then the second one was uh, Billie Holiday. And so it just happened to be that the day that we were scheduled to record this podcast was a day that I was supposed to be listening to Billie Holiday. And I did. And I, there were some of those songs that I'd never heard before. Oh, wow. That's really, that's a cool little project to do. Yeah, I'm not involved in that. I'm not a music journalist or anything, but I'm like, you know what? 
I only know a few of these. And so some of the, the ones that I wasn't familiar with, I'm like, this is actually pretty cool. And some of them that I wasn't familiar with, I'm like, eh, I don't know why this is even on that list. Well, now you're getting really familiar with Billie Holiday. Yeah, it's, I, I'm actually hearing some, some pretty cool stories uh, as I'm like diving in and, uh, and doing more research. I actually learned that she didn't want to be a singer. I, I knew her since I was a kid. My parents had a Billie Holiday CD. I, I want to say it was Lady Sings the Blues, which is the same name as one of the books, right? And I always thought that she was a blues singer. And I guess she didn't want to be known as a blues singer. She wanted to be a jazz singer. And originally, she didn't even want to be a singer in the first place. She auditioned at these clubs to be a dancer. And they're like, well, we don't need a dancer. But if you can sing. You're actually right. She did audition to be a dancer, but she couldn't dance. And in a last-ditch effort, the pianist at one of the clubs, Pods and Jerry's, said, hey, can you sing? Well, she is a singer, and she knew she could sing, but she brought so much joy or got so much joy out of singing, she didn't think she could make it a career out of it because she didn't just put together work and joy could be the same thing. So it had never crossed her mind to be a singer, so she was trying to be a dancer. Yeah, and she didn't even uh, train to be a singer or a dancer, really, right? This is all kind of self-taught. It's all self-taught. I mean, her dad obviously had a musical gene in his body, mm -hmm. but he wasn't a singer. Yeah, right. Well, in 1935, at 20 years old, Billy sang for an audience of 2,000 people at the Apollo. You ever uh, remember watching uh, on late-night TV Showtime at the Apollo? I do. Yeah, so that I... is like a... A very historic place in Harlem where people would go, and a lot of people would get their big break. Mm -hmm. um, I actually watched uh, a period piece on Amazon Prime called The, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and uh, she opened up for some pretty major acts uh, right there at, at the Apollo, too. So it's kind of cool seeing it brought up in a historical context like this. She had never sung for more than like 200 people before that, and she won over the place. And so she was invited back for a return engagement. Billy was discovered during the time of Prohibition, which wasn't repealed until 1933. So these types of clubs were illegal unless you paid off the cops, which many of them did. Even then, sometimes the feds would raid the club. The speakeasy didn't use microphones, so the noise wouldn't filter out into the streets. So Billy sang at tables, and she would go table to table, singing the same song, often in different styles every time, as the, the band would kind of play along. Could you imagine just projecting your voice to fill a room and just sing and then sing the same song at different tempos at a table next there and next and just fill the room with just your voice with no microphone or anything. Yeah. I, back in the day, I used to buy CDs of a, a single. So instead of buying the album, which was like $18.99, I'd buy a single for like $8.99. And it had the regular song, but then it also had like the Latin mix or the um, electronica mix or something like that. So it's kind of fun hearing uh, the same song performed in different styles and that must have been a real treat to be uh, at the club listening to her do that live talent yeah and john hammond who had connections to record companies got her a deal however the depression almost destroyed making records there was no money in recording even if you had a hit you didn't get any of the royalties billy was paid 35 bucks for her first record back then the benefit of a recording contract is the publicity that you get and then you're able to make money from the live performances Holiday recorded two songs with musician Benny Goodman under Hammond's label Brunswick, Your Mother's Son-in-Law, and Riffin' the Scotch. The latter song sold 5,000 copies. Billy was signed to Brunswick by John Hammond to record pop tunes with pianist Teddy Wilson. Teddy got his deal first, and after about four or five successful sessions with Teddy, Billy was signed to Vocal Lions as a solo artist. 
Brunswick and Vocalions are both part of the American Record Corporation. She was given no royalties, but she was paid $5,000 a year at the rate of 100 bucks a week, and then also 8 cents per record sold. So $5,000 a year in today's dollars would be about $90,000, which is a, a decent salary for a, for a performer. Wilson and Holiday were a great asset to Brunswick. The record label was broke, and Brunswick unable to record many jazz tunes. Wilson and Holiday and other musicians came into the studio without written arrangements, reducing the recording cost. The song, I Cried For You, by Teddy and Billy, sold 15,000 copies. A successful record at the time sold about three to 4,000, so this was huge. Big hit for the Brunswick label. Billy got a steady gig playing uptown. On the night of March 1st, 1937, Billy received a call right before she was about to take stage. She had learned that her father had died in Dallas, Texas. Clarence caught a cold, which had worsened. He had searched for a hospital that would see him, but he was turned away because of Jim Crow laws. They wouldn't see him for the color of his skin. He finally found a veteran's hospital, and after proving he was a veteran, they placed him in the colored portion of the hospital. By this time, it was too late. The pneumonia had taken over his already damaged lungs, and he was just there, waiting to die. My goodness, a veteran couldn't be seen at a hospital of all places. Right, and he had to prove he was a veteran to even be seen, and then they put him in a different ward. So who even knows what kind of quality of care he was getting? It's crazy to me that people of color were turned away at restaurants or at hotels, but at a hospital, you think that they would have some kind of moral obligation to see everybody, treat everybody equally. And this isn't even like ancient history. This is in my grandparents' day. Like my grandparents were in their 20s when this happened. Right. I mean, when you become a doctor, you have to, a doctor or a nurse or even kind of a medical professional, you have to swear by the Hippocratic Oath where mm -hmm. you are going to serve and and bring and protect the lives and give dignity. But I feel like this is in a, in a violation of that. Oh, of course. The funeral itself almost turned into a mockery. Fanny, his current wife, was joined by Atlanta, Clarence's unofficial wife, and their two children, a boy and a girl. Sadie rented a separate car to attend the site, refusing to share with Fanny, wife, the first wife, but ended up getting lost and missing the burial. Sadie would then, for the rest of her life, cry to her friends that Clarence was the love of her life. Clarence was the guy that got her pregnant at like 16 right. years old, wanted to be a jazz musician, disappeared. And now he has two new wives and families that he decided to commit to. Right. It kind of sounds like Billy's mother wants to be a martyr. Yeah. Now Billy would never know him any better. The father whom fate cheated her from in the beginning was now gone forever. In late 1937, Holiday had a brief stint as a vocalist with the Count Basie Orchestra, a 16 to 18 piece big band one of the most prominent jazz performing groups of the swing era, founded by Count Basie. She performed many one-nighters in the club, moving from city to city with little stability, long hot bus rides, hotel rooms, the racism on the road. There was conflict with Billy's singing style. John Hammond wanted Billy to sing the blues, but Billy was a jazz singer and she refused to change her style. Billy was fired from Count Basie Orchestra. Her last performance was ironically at the Apollo, where she had her greatest triumph. She was fired for being temperamental and unreliable. She complained of low pay and poor working conditions 
and may have refused to sing the songs requested of her or to change her style. Wow, so did she kind of become a prima donna or were these requests unreasonable? No, I don't think they were unreasonable at all. She was complaining of terrible working conditions, long hours, low pay. They hired her to be a jazz singer and then they want to change her yeah. to a blues singer? Well, I do he hear of that happening in the music world. I've, I've got a friend whose brother uh, played like kind of poppy punk music and he was signed to a record label and they said, well, you're going to be playing like retro 1980s style music. And they actually had like a couple of you know records and they toured. And so that's that was kind of interesting to see from the outside that your label gets to change your style. I heard that uh, Sugar Ray, who we know is kind of like that lame 90s uh, pop rock artist. Right. He was in a, a metal band called the Shrinky Dinks and his label changed his style too. John Mayer, super talented uh, blues singer and musician, did not do blues for his first album. Like he was just doing that poppy, you know, crap, which is fun, but it's not at all what he wanted to do. So I can understand labels saying, you know what, you're super talented, but we don't need that. They do that in the film industry too, by the way. They'll, they'll say, you know what, we love what you did with your last film, but we're not looking for another Western. Why don't you do this film? It's a, a film about pirates or it's a film about whatever. So I think they're just kind of a talent agency and you got to do what they want to make money. I mean, I, I, I guess that that's true, but I'm looking at it as you hired me for this. You can't change it because this is what you found me on and this is my style and this is my technique and this is what you you presented the contract with and now you can't change it. Yeah, that is a good argument, but I guess then the the uh, the label or the the management company could say, well, we don't need that, so I think we'll have to sever our contract and hire a blues singer. Like, right? You it's just kind an of unfortunate situation. Choice is yours. Yeah. So Billie Holiday was hired then by Artie Shaw a month after being fired from the Count Basie band. She was the first black woman to work with a white orchestra. This was unusual because in this situation, it could create racial tensions, especially in the South. A black female singer employed full-time toward the segregated U.S. South with a white band leader, and that was kind of a risk. So Billy was sometimes heckled by members of the audience. In Louisville, Kentucky, a man called her uh, the N-word, Wench, and requested that she sings another song. Holiday lost her temper, calling him a motherfucker. Can we cuss on this? We can totally fucking cuss on this. What are okay. you talking about? Well, I'll draw the line at, uh, at some other words. But yeah, uh, and nobody but the heckler heard her, but a ruckus ensued. Billy had to be escorted off the stage. This kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier with uh, Luke Bryan having a heckler in the uh, front row, flipping him off. Oh, don't you come for my Luke Bryan. <laughs> well, you know what? First thing I heard about him was, what a jerk. He goes around punching his fans in the face. Now, watching the video, I can see that that guy totally antagonized him. But, right. Where do you draw the where do performers draw the line at being antagonized and where can they defend themselves? Even like when Tim McGraw was grabbed in the crotch by a woman fan. Like, is that ever okay? You, no, it's it's not. But uh um I guess physical assault is where you've got to draw the line. Right. And I don't know that that, that guy warranted it, but I, I can understand being in front of a lot of people and being heckled to the point of like, dude, I'm trying to do a job. I'm under a lot of pressure. And so, yeah. So she ended up uh, kind of starting this, this brawl. Artie ended up hitting a cop over the head with his clarinet in a fight. Sometimes she wasn't even allowed to sit on the bandstand. 
They didn't care if she sang, they just didn't want her sitting up there with the band, which is crazy because they're recognizing her talent and saying, you know what, we just don't want to see her. Right. We're good enough. You're good enough to sing to us, but you're not good enough for us to look at you. Ugh. Yeah. Holiday often couldn't always sing during Shah's shows. Its repertoire was more instrumental with fewer vocals. In some venues, African-American performers were required to remain offstage until they performed. Artie was advised to hire a white singer, so he hired 19-year-old Helen Forrest. The band members all chipped in money from their paychecks to keep Billy on tour with them. That's a good good set of camaraderie right there. Like, okay, let me give you some of my paycheck. Yeah. I um, It's weird when you hear stories like that. I, like I've heard of um, on The Big Bang Theory. I don't know if you remember... Um, all of the the four main actors, the men, uh-huh. uh, were getting big money, like a million bucks an episode or something. But uh, Kaylee Kuoku, who played Penny, was getting much less. And they were like, you know, she's like an equal to us. And they kind of all chipped in part of their paychecks to uh, bring her to the same level. See, I like that kind of camaraderie. I like how that works. It's like it's like when those prohos chipped in and, uh-huh. and and paid for Stormy Daniels to answer our question. Like, that's it. That's our vibe. Yeah, but in some cases like this, they, they shouldn't have had to. You know, no. like I hear stories of um, Walmart refusing to pay medical benefits for some of their employees that are, that they keep them working just under full time. And they encourage their employees to kind of chip in to have a pool to to fund their, their coworkers. And those are people that are not making much money either. Ironically, some hospitals are like that, too, where it, it's hard to get the full time. So they'll bring you on part time or they'll bring you on per diem just so you can work, especially if you work per diem, you can get full time hours, but you're not considered full time. So you don't get the benefit. That's crap. Yeah. And that's medical. That's right. I, I had to work like that for many years before I landed a full time position where all right, I'll just take the per diem and then work ridiculous hours a week. Yeah, it's like that in the entertainment industry too now. Yeah. Unfortunately, Billy was used to this kind of racism and expected this in the South. It was when it occurred in the North is when Billy got frustrated. Even with their fame, Billy was still subjected to racism. While in New York, the manager of the Lincoln Hotel had asked if Billy could use the freight elevator instead of the guest, so the white guest wouldn't assume people of color were staying there. That's very ironic, I think, to be at the Lincoln Hotel. That because Lincoln freed the slaves. Yeah. That that's a good catch. Billy was never allowed to visit the bar or the dining room, as did the other members of the band. She was made to leave and enter through the kitchen. Radio broadcasts such as old gold cigarettes didn't want her singing on air. Presumably, they wanted people of color to smoke their cigarettes, but they didn't want a woman of color singing for them. Suddenly, the band was having success. A huge record, top engagements, booked out for months. They were making $25,000 a week, but Billy was shut out of all of these deals. $25,000 a week, which today would be almost half a million dollars a week. Half a million dollars a week. Oh, my God. And she was shut out of those deals while the rest of the band is splitting it. Billy was understandably unhappy with these arrangements. The band was making great money and couldn't turn everything down. Artie and her worked out an agreement, and she gave the band two weeks' notice, and in December 1938, Billy and Artie parted ways. 
There are no surviving live recordings of Holiday with Shaw's band, because she was under contract to a different record label and possibly because of her race. Billy's stay with Artie was ultimately more disappointing than her time with Basie. The entire Basie band had to endure the insulting inconveniences of racist America. 1938 may have been an all-time low for Billy. Her spirits were at an end. She knew she had lots of fans, and certainly the best musicians in the country were standing with her in her corner. However, she was denied access to mass audiences. But for the better or the worse, her career took a turn when Cafe Society opened up. It was a club that integrated its entertainers and its audience. It's here where she sang the anti-lynching song, Strange Fruit, for the first time. Let's uh, go ahead and take a listen to just a few seconds of Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear a strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the Such powerful lyrics. And I, I didn't realize you. until recently that Strange Fruit was a, an anti-lynching song. I, I tend to take things pretty literally. So when I hear Strange Fruit, I'm like, I guess it's a song about Strange Fruit. Well, if you listen to the words, blood on the leaves, bodies hangings, crows to pluck. I guess I never did that before. But the song Strange Fruit was actually a poem that was written by a high school teacher named Abel Mirapool. He used the pseudonym Lewis Allen. Mirapool was a white Jewish guy from the Bronx, and these things weren't discussed at the time. This was before the 1960s when there was a civil rights movement. Mirapool had written the poem after being inspired by the Lawrence Beltier 1930 photograph of the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith. It's a really disturbing photograph, but if you're interested in learning more about the subject, you can look up the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith. According to the NAACP, from 1882 to 1968, 4,743 lynchings occurred in the United States. Black men, women, and children accounted for 72.7% of people lynched. 27.3% of whites lynched were lynched for helping blacks or being anti-lynching. Not all lynchings were recorded, so these numbers could be higher. I'm sure that they are. Mirapool also wrote The House I Live In by Frank Sinatra, which was a plea for tolerance in 1945, which was just at the end of World War II. New York lawmakers did not like the poem and even called to have Mirapool testify before a committee investigating communism in public schools and wanted to know if the American Communist Party had paid him to write the song. There are a million reasons to disparage communism now, but at this point, American communism was concerned with civil rights and fought for them early on. Because Mirpool wrote Strange Fruit under the pseudonym Lewis Allen, we will refer to him as such further on. Lewis had approached the owners of Cafe Society with a poem who passed it on to Billy. Allen had played Billy's the song. Billy was non-political and not sure about the song. She had told Lewis she had to think it over. It appears she thought it over. The song connected with Billy. It reminded her of her father's death and being denied medical treatment because of Jim Crow laws. Billy sang Strange Fruit three times a night to close out every show. When she sang it, the room was completely blacked out. Service stopped everywhere. Everything was dark except for a light on her face. When she sang the song, she never moved, her hands down and never touching the mic. Her tears never interfered with her voice, but they were visible. At times, her performance of the song was met with fierce pushback. Though many people knew that lynchings of African Americans in the South were common, there was resistance to end the practice among Southern whites. 
Racism, combined with a popular desire to limit federal power over local concerns, kept people in the North from making any successful moves to end lynchings in the South. During this time, national magazines didn't print pictures of African Americans. Soon after Billy started singing Strange Fruit, Time Life magazine took her picture and printed the lyrics next to her picture. She started by opening at Cafe Society as a woman who had failed in big bands, essentially a nobody, but in two years she was the first woman of color printed in Time magazine, and she was a star. Sixty years later, in 1999, Time magazine named Strange Fruit the best song of the century. So over a hundred years ago, Time magazine started with their Man of the Year, and that's a tradition that they've had for a long time, up until 1999, when they changed it to Person of the Year. So that was over 20 years ago. Now, their person or man of the year wasn't always to recognize the best person of the year. Sometimes it was just to say this was a very influential person in history that year. So, for example, uh, Mussolini or Adolf Hitler in 1938. What Time Magazine did uh, retroactively, um, they went back and said, well, since we limited uh, our original publications to man of the year, we should go back and recognize the woman of the year for the last 72 years. So what they did is they went back and they created 89 new Time Magazine covers uh, that were designed by the same prominent artists. And the 1939 woman of the year was Billie Holiday. Oh, interesting. Other famous women that were recognized as woman of the year were Amelia Earhart, Jacqueline Kennedy, Lucille Ball, Aretha Franklin. And Billie Holiday was recognized very much in part to her, the success of her protest song, Strange Fruit. Even though the popularity of the song and Billie's rising fame, Billie's record label, Brunswick Columbia, wouldn't let her record the song. They deemed it too sensitive. But they did agree to let her record it for a smaller record label, Commodore Records. Now, there's something interesting that I learned about Commodore Records, just kind of like doing a little bit of research. Uh, when I went to iTunes to listen to Billie Holiday's music. Uh, there's a few albums uh, that you can listen to. Lady Sings the Blues, I think, is one of them. Another one is, is called Billie Remembers Billie. And uh, if you read the front of the, the album, it's Billy Crystal Remembers Billie Holiday. And I was thinking, that's a really strange connection to have a comedian talking about a jazz singer from 80 years ago, because I think this came out in the early 2000s. And what I had learned was that Billy Crystal's uncle was Jack Crystal, who was one of the co-owners of uh, Commodore Records. Wow, there you go again with your research, Connor. So, yeah, so so that's that's the connection. So he, he knew her well. They saw her all the time. She was always in the shop. She actually used to babysit him when he was younger. She took him to see his first movie. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. And uh, there's a picture here of uh, Commodore Music Shop. And you can see Jack Crystal in the corner, and he looks kind of like Billy Crystal. So that's kind of neat. So that's why he was kind of uh, remembering her and chose his favorite uh, Billy Holiday songs. You know, I think it's kind of cool to think about, okay, we still have an actor who is alive who still has a connection with Billy Holiday and can actually tell stories of her. And I feel like there's there's still a connection and her her spirit still lives on because he can still talk about what she was like as a babysitter. And I, I, I think that's great. Yeah. So when I listen to music for the first time, I'm just like listening to the music. Her album's just, you know, really chill. And so I'm just kind of like relaxed and listening to it. But I bet to Billy Crystal, it has like a whole different context because he was like going through that. Right. His family is part of this notoriety. Mm -hmm. 
That's a really cool tidbit. Thank yeah. you, Connor. Un- unrelated, his name is uh, William Crystal. It was William Edward Crystal. And I thought that was such a weird thing because it's the same thing, but Billy Crystal just feels just a little bit more. More cooler, relaxed. Fitting for him. Yeah. So she recorded a record with four songs, one being Strange Fruit. The song didn't receive any airplay, but it did do well. How's that? So the radios weren't playing it, but would this classify a Streisand effect? Possibly, because people had heard about it and they wanted to purchase a copy once they knew that their friends were talking about this new song. I mean, it was creating some type of controversy because of the topic of the song. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if they weren't playing it, but people were still searching it out. That's the Streisand effect. Yep. Billy's career was moving in all the right directions. Her personal life was not. In the summer of 1941, she eloped with Jimmy Monroe. Best described as a hustler, a small-time drug dealer. Her mother had disapproved. That's when you want to date a man when your mom doesn't like him, right? <laughs> right. Now, this guy sounds like a real piece of work, but she saw something in him. Billy's mother had claimed that he would never marry her. Jimmy Monroe had good taste in class, but he too also had a past, and Billy felt like that made them equals. What kind of a past did this guy have? Well, he had a mistress and an opium habit, and he showed no signs of giving up either. When Billy found out about it, she wanted to be with him. She wanted to have a successful marriage. Billy said she started smoking opium in an attempt to save her marriage to Jimmy, but opium makes you nauseous and your throat sore. And with the vomiting that came with the opioid use, Billy's voice started to change. However, she was hooked. That sounds, in hindsight, like a terrible plan to begin with. To try and save your marriage by getting on drugs so you can do them with your spouse. Yeah, with the guy that that you love. I wouldn't suggest it. Well, they did get married, but it didn't last. Towards the end of their marriage, Billy and Jimmy left for Chicago, where she appeared for a six-week engagement at the famous store. Then to California, where she performed at a club like Cafe Society that opened up on the West Coast. The club opened in October and only lasted a few weeks. Billy and Jimmy were broke. Billy returned to the East Coast and Jimmy stayed on the West Coast. Their marriage was over. She was now in her late 20s. She wanted to be happy and she just wasn't. She had fought with her mother over Jimmy and it looks like she was the one that made the mistake. In 1942, Jimmy was caught smuggling marijuana into California from Mexico and he served a nine-month sentence. In between husbands, Billy had a string of romances, some with men, some with women, one with Tallulah Bankhead, an actress and a daughter of Congressman John Simmons, with whom she lived. Later that year, Billy met Joe Guy, a house trumpeter in Mitten's Playhouse. It's unknown who got who started with these heavy drugs, and to be honest, it's pointless to even blame anyone at this point. She knew how to conceal her drug use from people. It was rare she missed a show. Though typical for her to start two hours late, people in the business knew it and it began to take her longer and longer to get ready in her dressing room because she was looking for veins. She had needle marks in her arms and once her arms got so infected that she was warned if she continued, her arms would be amputated. So she started to shoot up in her fingertips. It got to the point it was written in her contract that if she didn't start on time, money would be deducted from her pay. The song Lover Man, Where Can You Be, was actually about heroin. I had no idea until you told me that. And I listened to the song and I read the lyrics and it's not super clear. It's, it still seems like it was written about a man. And I wonder 
if that is just because it's literally called Lover Man, where can you be? Or is there some kind of misogynistic tendencies in me to think that male singers singing the blues are singing about, I got no money, I got no uh, home, I got no woman, I got, you know, my kids left me, my truck, you know, whatever. But if a woman's got the blues, it's because of a man. I, I feel like it it does have some misogynistic tendencies to it. But then there's also other songs that have, that you think are about one thing when in fact they're completely not like you two with or without you is that, actually about the drug epidemic in Ireland. Did you know that you two had a song about Billie Holiday? I didn't. I know Tupac referenced her in one of his songs, Thug Mansion, but I didn't know that he, that you two had a song, Billie Holiday. Yeah. They, um, the song was called Angel of Harlem. And it basically talks about uh, a bunch of different figures, but it's really a tribute to Billie Holiday. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I, I, I haven't really listened to you two very much, so I wouldn't know that because I'm not a diehard fan, but I do like With or Without You. Yeah. Guy and Billie both had growing addictions and in a tumultuous relationship. There's reports she and Guy married, but she was still married to Jimmy Monroe during this relationship. So just so we're clear... There was Jimmy Monroe, who went to jail for drugs, which was just barely, it was like marijuana. He was also doing opium. And then we've got Guy, who is doing heroin and got her into heroin as well. Well, it's unsure who got who into heroin. Right, that's right. So they hit the road and had zero experience other than with big bands, which didn't bode well for Billy. It was a disaster, and right in the middle of the tour in October, Billy got word her mother Sadie had died at 49 years old. The cause of death was not mentioned on her death certificate. Her manager, Joe Glazer, gave her an ultimatum to either get clean or get in trouble with the law because he had seen it. Billy paid $2,000 for a three-week cold turkey cure in a clinic in New York. All it was was nurses hooking her up to jugs of glucose to clean out her system. It just purified her system. It didn't help her kick any habit. Yeah, $2,000 is a lot of money to spend for three weeks for that kind of treatment. It sounds like this cold turkey treatment was just like, hey, we're going to get out of your system. That should help with the uh, chemical addiction. But if she was still addicted to the act of shooting up, right. it's not right. really going to It sounds like she has her. an addictive personality, but would, would the, this be considered quack medicine? I don't know. There, there might be some uh, science to it. Or maybe it was just ignorance because of the time. We don't know much about addiction. Well, if you've got drugs in your system, cleaning it out with something else seems like a reasonable way to handle it. But um, it definitely doesn't help the the psychological cause of that addiction. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably what was uh, problematic. So Billy tried. She paid these thousands of dollars for this cold turkey cure, and it didn't work. She was back on drugs. Joe Glazer made good on his promise to her, his threat, and he had her set up. He was trying to save her and figured that the only way he could do that was to have the government come get her. But what Glazer didn't know was that the government was already watching Billy. Harry Anslinger was the first commissioner for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he was also an extreme racist. He claimed that narcotics made black people forget their place in the fabric of American society. Think about what that means. And jazz musicians were dangerous, in particular, creating satanic music under the influence of marijuana. What a different time. Right? I mean, 
I enjoy my marijuana. <laughs> Do you? Well, Billy, throughout her career, called public attention to the devastating impact of white supremacy. Anslinger attempted to silence Billy with orders to not sing the song Strange Fruit. And of course, Billy refused. Agents were also watching Joe Guy. From here on, I will refer to the men by their last names. Glaser didn't want Billy harmed, but he did want to get rid of Guy. Guy furnished her the drugs every day. Every day, Guy would walk up 8th Avenue with Billy's dog, a boxer named Mr., for a connection. Guy would unleash the dog who was trained to enter a specific door at the Braddock Hotel. The elevator operator at this hotel would wait for the dog to take him up to a floor where the dog would then have drugs tucked into his collar and then return to Guy, who would then bring the drugs to Billy. What an operation. What a smart dog. (laughs) Billy sailed along without getting caught. She was in a hotel room that was raided but was clean and let go. Another time, she was caught with a syringe and a tiny amount of liquid substance. It was too small for a case. In 1947, federal agents busted Guy and Holiday for narcotic possession. Billy was convinced that no one could help her, even if they wanted to. Her agent suggested that this is the best thing that could have happened to her. Her lawyer refused to come down to Philadelphia for the trial, and she was too wealthy to qualify for legal aid. She was terribly sick and had been given morphine when she appeared in the courtroom. Billy had been promised a hospital cure in return for a plea of guilty, Instead, she was convicted as a criminal defendant and a wrongdoer and sentenced to a year and a day in a federal woman's reformatory at Alderson, West Virginia. So they basically told her, if you plead guilty to this and make our case easier for us, like basically a slam dunk, we're going to give you a hospital cure. We're going to help you out. Don't worry. All you got to do is plead guilty. And what happened? And they they sent her to jail. They not only imprisoned her, but this whole plan backfired. She was convicted of a felony and she lost her cabaret license in New York, so she could no longer work in any places that sold alcohol. So at Alderson, West Virginia, which was segregated, Billy had to endure cold turkey withdrawal. She was further, quote-unquote, cured by performing useful cleaning chores, like hauling coal, keeping pigs, and setting tables. She was not allowed to receive any of the letters and gifts that arrived from people all over the world that wanted to remind her that they loved her. She could have used more love and less work, Her early life taught her enough about scrubbing floors, but she also needed to reconsider her addiction with some sort of guidance. But this was not given. As she said later, with all the doctors, nurses, and equipment, they never get near your insides at what's really eating you. Billy never once sang during the 10 months that she was in jail. Guy immediately disappeared from the scene, returning home to Birmingham and spending his last years playing in local bands. So Guy was never charged with anything. It seems like uh, she was the one that got in trouble. and he She kinda... was the one that got in trouble. Guy was never charged with anything. Interesting. And he kind of like brought it all to her. He brought it all to her. And she, with her testimony, she was able to get him off. So they never charged him. And then he disappeared. What a Which... guy. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah. In 1948, as she entered the last phase of her career, she didn't have a cabaret card and was marked as a jailbird. She would play concerts and do countrywide broadcast. A comeback concert was planned at Carnegie Hall. 2,700 tickets were sold in advance, a record at the time for the venue. Billy hadn't had a record on the charts since Loverman in 1945. She sang 21 songs and had a half dozen encores. How amazing. Like, that's a good comeback. That's an incredible comeback. But wait, three weeks later, 
Billy did it again, smashing the record she did just three weeks earlier. She must have really identified with the, this audience because they loved her. Billy fell into a pattern of toxic relationships. Every man she chose was worse than the one before. Monroe got her hooked on opioids, Guy supplied her with heroin, and now John Levy. John was a partner in the Ebony Club, a small-time gangster. He promised even though Billy didn't have her cabaret license, she could still perform at his club because he'd pay them off. How could this guy be worse than the other two? Just wait. Okay. Levy worked Billy hard for a while. She made lots of money, most of which he kept. Although he also kept her in minks and Cadillacs with telephones and all other luxuries, but if she asked for money, he'd say, What do you need that for? You have everything you ever needed. Levy was violent. Before shows, he would beat her. He would drag her by her hair, kick her multiple times in the stomach. She once had to have her ribs taped up before a show because she complained she couldn't breathe. Another time, she had to perform with sunglasses on because she had a black eye. I see now that this guy was a real piece of shit. You know, though, reading this book, I was appalled at how normal they made domestic violence seem. Like they said, Billy got in her hits too. Like that was some kind of okay for this to be happening. Or she likely called him a motherfucker. Right. So she had it coming. Right. And then they even said, oh, well, Ella Fitzgerald had to perform with some glasses because she was in a violent relationship. Like that was somehow okay. So when I was reading this, I was disturbed by it. So I did do some research on domestic violence for this period of time. And there weren't really many records or arrests for this time period. But shortly after 1962, New York domestic violence cases were transferred from criminal court to civil court where civil procedures apply. Husbands never faced harsh penalties as he would if he was found guilty in criminal court for assaulting a stranger. So basically, if he hit his wife, it would be a civil suit, not a criminal suit. But if he hit a stranger, it would be a criminal suit. And that was ruled in 1962. So I guess their line of thought is like, well, you're not really assaulting anyone. It's your wife. Right. Like it's ownership. Okay. Beating his cruel and inhumane treatment becomes grounds for a divorce in New York. But the plaintiff must establish sufficient number of beatings to have taken place. So one or two is fine. But if you're getting beaten nightly. If it's a pattern, then... An article issued in Times dated September 25th, 1964, said couples stay in abusive relationships because their fighting can balance out each other's mental quirks. In Time Magazine. Yeah, I mean, I will say opposites attract and getting into arguments is pretty normal, at least in my experience, you know, like you can balance each other out. But once things get like to the point where you're abusing each other, like emotionally, psychologically, physically, uh, you got to draw the line somewhere. Right. And it's hard to find that line because as I am a survivor of domestic violence, it's hard even when you're into it to even realize that this is happening. Like you don't look at yourself as you're a victim. This is just like, I remember in my case in point, when I started to heal and I would go to therapy, the first thing I said to my therapist was, well, I made him that mad. Mm. I took the blame. And that's my therapist. He's He kind of leaned forward and said, this is where we're going to start. <laughs> and I never looked at myself as a victim because it it was in my head of, 
wait, I did make him that, that mad. I did say that, or I did look at him weird. And I did take that blame. And it's almost like they're projecting that blame in the woman or, or the victim. I shouldn't just narrow it down to woman. Right. It is that. And well, was this a childhood thing or like a, a grown up relationship thing? Grown up relationship. Hmm. What's most shocking is that doctors believe that a man beating his wife under these circumstances was actually a good thing. They called it violent temporary therapy, even going as so far as to writing the periods of violent behavior by a husband. The doctor observed served to release him momentarily from his anxiety and his ineffectiveness as a man while giving his wife apparent masochistic gratification and helping probably to deal with the guilt arising from the intense hostility expressed in her controlling, castrating behavior. This was a direct quote from the Time magazine. The book also does refer to Billy as a masochist. Was there any evidence to suggest that she at all liked this or needed that kind of... No, there was no evidence of it. Crazy. Billy wanted to sever her ties with Levy, so Levy set her up in retaliation. He framed her by getting her arrested on a phony dope charge. After she performed at Tenor Society in San Francisco in January 1949, the hotel room was raided by the Federal Narcotics Agency. The room had about $50 worth of opium and a pipe. Levy told Billy to dump it, and they found her with it, trying to dispose of it in a toilet. It wouldn't flush, and they were each arrested and freed on a $500 bail. So that includes Levy being arrested, right? After he tried to set her up? They were each arrested, yes. While Billy was indicted, Levy fled the state. Levy tried to negotiate a lighter sentence for himself by being an informant. He's the one that called him in the first place. Billy's attorney had a plan, and he was convinced that Levy was setting up Billy, as we know now that he was. So Billy was set up by two men in her life, her manager and now her lover. Right. He had found photos of Levy with the arresting officers, and when the arresting officers would testify that they didn't know Levy, he presented those photos of them together at Levy's club and basically presented a case that uh, they were kind of in cahoots. Billy's friend and one-time lover, Tallulah Bankhead, hosted a three-way conversation with Billy and J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI. Tallulah even wrote a letter to Hoover asking for leniency, and Hoover replied, narcotics are not his responsibility. So he was not very helpful at all in this case. No, even though he did have a rivalry with Anslinger, there was a rivalry there. He didn't get involved. So Billy's attorney had her checked into a mental health facility, Twin Pines. He figured if she was on drugs, she'd go through withdrawals. She was there for five days and never once exhibited symptoms of withdrawals. Her doctor, who had placed her in the facility, testified on her behalf that she showed no signs of withdrawals, so she couldn't be back on drugs. When the doctor testified his findings, the courts threw out his evidence. However, the jury heard it and started to suspect she was set up. That's pretty crappy that they would be very selective in what evidence they admit. Right. They were trying to pin this on her, and she had a great attorney who was definitely advocating for her. The jurors acquitted Billy. Levy was never indicted. Of course he wasn't. By the 1950s, Holiday's drug use, drinking, and relationship with abusive men caused her health to deteriorate. Unable to perform regularly at venues she loved and to stop remembering a childhood that included being raped at 10 
and working in a brothel with her mother, Holiday eventually began using heroin again. Mm. That's a, a terrible uh, thing to get into at this stage in her life and career. Right. Levy was still in the picture, though. Not romantically linked, but their business relationship was still violent, and she was still back on heroin. Levy thought he could get Billy off of heroin and onto opium, but it never worked, so he decided to leave. Levy died of a brain hemorrhage on Thanksgiving Day 1957. The Department of Justice was said by his brother Ron to be at his funeral to confirm his death and arrest another member of the family. Billy went on and off the needle. In California, there was an internal possession law that if she had marks on her arm, she could be arrested for possession of heroin, even though it was inside her body. So now the California law is in criminal law, it, internal possession is a criminal charge at, of possessions of alcohols and drugs based upon tests. So you have to take a test to prove that the drugs are in your system. They can't just say, oh, you have marks on your arms. You're going to jail. Now they have to do the sobriety test or the other test to prove you're under the influence before you're arrested. Do they have to have any kind of probable cause or could they just drug test you? I believe they would have to have some kind of probable cause of thinking whether your eyes being dilated or if you have something in your car suspecting like maybe some type of drug paraphernalia making them think possibly or whether how you're behaving or driving. Well, so she didn't want these track marks on her arms, so she would snort it. And by this time, Billy was also an alcoholic. Now, this was a time where people thought that anyone who drank heavily couldn't also be a drug addict, and people that were on drugs weren't also drinking. So she used her heavy alcohol drinking to hide her drug addiction. Billy hooked up with Louis McKay. He was ruthless and exploited her. He made John Levy look sweet and loving. Billy regularly had black eyes and bruises. Louis was married with two kids. She'd hit her first tour in Europe with Jazz Club USA. McKay accompanied her. Billy was able to stay sober during the tour, fearing what would happen if she was caught with drugs. Fans loved to see her. She glowed during the performances. Fans gifted her with flowers and photographs, giving Billy the warm feeling she had been missing from the domestic rounds of the American nightclub scene. Once they returned to America, Billy was back to the same struggles. She made an attempt to leave McKay and find new management with Joe Glazer and made it so far as to getting off of a subway train. As soon as she stepped off the train, she froze and refused to leave McKay and got right back on that train. Ah, so close. So close. In February 1956, McKay and Billy were in Philadelphia for a performance. Their hotel room was raided and drugs were found. Billy and McKay were arrested. Soon after that, McKay paid Jimmy Monroe, who was still technically married to Billy, $2,000 to cooperate in a divorce and married Billy in Mexico. That way she would be unable to testify against him. It's unclear if he was still married to his first wife at this time. So what they're referring to is something called spousal privilege or marital privilege or sometimes husband-wife privilege. And it basically says that if a woman or a man is on trial, they cannot require their spouse to testify against them. Like you can basically invoke the privilege to say, I, I don't want to do that. And that's probably what his motive was to have her invoke that privilege of not having to testify. Right. Now, if she wanted to, though, she could I, I bet that she could have. So I wonder if she was trying to protect him or not. Billy was one of those people who bragged about never getting sick. In 1956, she had collapsed in her hotel room and she was treated for a small liver condition. Her cheeks were sunken in and she was placed in a tent and pumped with a machine to help her breathe. The heroin and alcohol abuse started to take a toll on her brain. 
She was like a child, unable to hold the conversation and in a constant daze. Billy's autobiography was selling 12,000 copies in its first year, which wasn't spectacular, but it boosted business for Billy. The book is still selling today, and it's one of the books that we used for information in today's episode. There's a constant talk about a movie. Billy knew that she was too old to play herself, and so there were rumbles about the Dorothy Dandridge, but they actually turned to Ava Gardner and Lana Turner. Ava and Lana are both white women, and this kind of reminds me of back in 1994 when studio executives wanted Julia Roberts to play Harriet Tubman. How could that be in 1994 hiring a white woman to play one of the most well-known black women in American history? How about we ask, how can it be that the movie wasn't made until 2019? Oh, it was. I just recently saw it, too. Yes. Harriet. So this movie was sitting there for this many years because they wanted a white woman to play Harriet Tubman. And finally, it was made in 2019. This feels like it was like in the um, back in the early days of cinema when they had like the uh, the minstrel shows that they would do on on film where they had white characters were blackface to play black characters because they were they weren't casting black actors yeah it feels like it but it's it's not in 1956 billy did it she finally filed for divorce from louis mckay billy believed in marriage and it took her 15 years to divorce monroe though they weren't officially together however after two years with mckay she wanted out in 1958 billy went on another tour around europe Though the some gigs were disasters, performing alongside dancing poodles, and another labeled her as a comedian, she was able to sing at the most famous opera house in the world, La Scala in Milan, Italy. So again, I'm going to bring up uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, because it was about this time that the show took place, and she was a comedian, and wherever she went, everybody wasn't used to female comedians, and they were like, oh, you're a singer? You should sing something. Oh, wow. I'm also going to look at it like this. She played the Apollo. Uh Uh-huh. Carnegie Hall. Yep. And La Scala. How exciting for her. Yeah. Big, big venues. Yeah. Once she returned from Europe, she received a call from the Customs Department that required all people who have served more than one year on a narcotics charge register before they leave the country and when they return. Billy had served one year and one day, violating this law. What a BS law. Nobody had ever heard of this legislation, nor did anybody talk to her about it when she left for Europe the first time. She was grilled by three district attorneys. However, she was able to charm them, and they decided not to prosecute. The last month of Billy's life had been her loneliest, people flocking around her at the height of her career, and once she became ill, they weren't around anymore, and she was broke. Billy was in bad physical shape. Visiting a doctor friend of hers, he noticed that she was swollen, her abdomen distended, legs edematous, and suggested she go to the hospital to get the fluid drained from her abdomen. So with my job, I've assisted in these procedures, and they're called a paracentesis. And I've done this quite frequently, and it's where they stick in a little needle and they drain fluid. And people come in with these big abdomens where they look like they're pregnant. And then they get the fluid, and their abdomen is just, it's now smaller once the fluid is drained out. And I think the most I've ever gotten out of somebody was maybe 16 liters. 16 liters? 16 liters. And we have to monitor their blood pressure because as they're... Their, their heart is working harder to pump, you know, blood around the body. And there's also this excess weight with the fluid. And so we have to monitor the blood pressure so there's not a crazy drop in it, too, as we're, we're getting all this fluid draining out of their, yeah, their so the, abdomen. These water bottles that we have that are like half a liter, 
it was 32 yeah. of these inside one person? Yeah. Yeah. So we would always look at it as, as two liters of soda uh -huh. and every two bottles would be a two liter of soda. So that would be eight, two liters. That's like enough for a little pizza party. Yeah. Yeah. So on May 31st, she was brought to the hospital unconscious. She had collapsed in her apartment, suffering from liver, heart, kidney, and other organ ailments. The paper said she was weak off of malnourishment and being fed intravenously to gain weight. As soon as she was off the oxygen, she started smoking again. During her hospital stay, it was known Billy would start going through withdrawals, and while being treated for her other problems, her doctors were reaching out to the mayor's office for support, while the law, at this time, wanted to take a stance against addicts and deny them proper care, at this point, Billy's condition was labeled terminal. The condition of the addiction or just Her condition crazy... in general was considered terminal by doctors, but the law was trying to intervene. Okay. Well, while she was in the hospital, the night nurse claimed that she found heroin in Billy's handbag, which was hanging on a nail on the other side of the room. Billy was strapped by her arms and legs to machines for transfusion, so moving there was nearly impossible. This created a conflict of whether they keep Billy in the hospital or throw her in jail. So they wanted to consider throwing her in jail even though she was strapped to a hospital bed. Right. Like maybe she at some point had the drugs in her possession, but she wasn't doing drugs actively. And I, I don't know if that was an, a third setup. It, it possibly could have been a third setup. Well, she had three police officers in front of her hospital door preventing visitors, and she was handcuffed to her bed. It's horrifying to think that they arrested somebody that was in her hospital bed, completely ignoring due process and grilling her without even informing her of her right to an attorney. Now, the Miranda rights weren't really established at this time, but I think that they still should have made you aware of your rights. Right. She had been arrested many times before, so she was well aware of the process, but still they should have given her some kind of notification that she had rights. Right. Now, Donald Wilkes applied for a writ of habeas corpus against Stephen Kennedy, who was a police commissioner of New York City. It stated that Billy's fundamental right in the Constitution that protects against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment was being violated. It was granted, and Billy was paroled to Wilkes. As soon as the writ was granted, the district attorney decided that Billy was no longer terminal and scheduled an arraignment at her bedside on June 22nd. So the DA decided Billy's medical condition, not the doctor's? Yeah, and that frustrates me even today that the insurance companies dictate what kind of care you can get and not the doctors. I think that we need to get to a point where the doctors are the ones that ultimately decide your care. Right, I, I see that quite often. Coincidentally, Billy was arrested seven days before the Wagner program for the treatment of addiction as a medical condition and not a criminal problem was announced. Churches were involved in setting up medical clinics to help addicts. Anslinger had proposed that two addicts bound together be arrested as this could be potential shooting galleries. However, this would close every clinic, recovering meetings wouldn't be allowed, and even Narcotics Anonymous would be disbanded. Billy's estranged husband had made it into town. Louis McKay was trying to swindle anybody he could for her money, but Billy didn't have any. He couldn't wait for her to die. He'd come into her hospital room reading Psalm 23. Billy joked, I've been a religious bitch all my life, but if that motherfucker believes in God, I'm thinking it over. Now, Psalm 23 is a pretty famous one. That's the, uh, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As I walk through the yeah. valley of the shadow of death. I think we're just both thinking of, of Coolio, but it's a real I, thing. I, yes. 
that was the most religion I had growing up was Coolio. Finally, Billy was able to be given methadone to block the withdrawal. Legally, the doctors no longer could be able to maintain a narcotic addict for a certain number of days. She was improving, but after 10 days, the methadone stopped. She slipped in and out of consciousness, and at 3 in the morning on July 17, 1959, Billy had passed away. The funeral was set up at St. Paul the Apostle Roman Catholic Church. Everybody associated with Billy's care and planning of arrangements knew that Louis McKay would be a problem, and sure enough, he attempted to stop the funeral. A plot of land was purchased for Billy next to Babe Ruth, but Louis saw that Billy be buried next to her mother. At least that was one thing that he did kind of decently. He did one thing decent. And then he proceeded to try and sell all of her belongings to some of her lifetime friends. The night Billy died, Louis was running around New York with a white woman. Billy was superstitious and never had a will set. She died with $750 taped to her body. Now, was this actually taped? To her body? I would imagine that it was taped to her leg because the other ways that I have heard, I would think that there would be other illnesses involved or it would have fallen out. Okay, because we've heard that uh, she smuggled this roll of $750 inside her person somehow. Mm-hmm. Billy tried and mostly failed at relationships. She tried to find love through sex. She had no conventional hang-ups, but she grew up fast and had no real childhood. She gave love freely, but she couldn't accept it. Her vulnerability was there, and everyone knew it, but couldn't reach it, and Billy was afraid to reveal it. She began to make terrible, destructive choices in relationships. She escaped her demons through music and becoming addicted to alcohol, drugs, and danger. She was beaten by many men, shot at by cops, and had scars all over her body from needles. And that's the story of Billie Holiday, a woman with humble beginnings that rose to the top despite various struggles with racism, abuse, and addictions, and she died almost penniless. But did leave a legacy. She did leave a legacy. With every episode, we suggest a charity for possible donations. Today's episode, we are suggesting Equal Justice Initiative, EJI. EJI works with communities that have been marginalized by poverty and discouraged by unequal treatment. They're committed to changing the narrative about race in America. Links will be in the show notes. We will also be linking another website in our show notes from EJI in regards to lynching in America. Now, Connor, I'd ask you if there was going to be a movie of Billie Holiday, who would play her? But it turns out on Hulu, they'll be releasing The United States versus Billie Holiday, directed by Lee Daniels and starry singer Andre Day on February 26th. Oh, that's coming right up. Right up. I'm perfect with this podcast. Do you have Hulu? I have Hulu. Okay, so you'll be watching it. I think I have access to Hulu. I've actually been watching the trailer. It looks pretty good, and I've been looking at the IMDb list to see what characters I know that are going to be in the movie. So it'll be interesting to see how close to the truth he gets. Mm -hmm. So I'll be watching. Yeah. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show... Please help us by leaving a five-star review and sharing us with your friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you guys so much.